If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, Lord, we come to you seeking grace. Your grace showers upon us because of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is none like Jesus. And Lord, we long to come face to face with him this morning, to know more about who you are what Jesus has done. Lord, we ask that you would bless us this morning. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Well, this is the second in our series on the five solas of the Reformation. And I hope that you are starting to see that these five great doctrines are intertwined. You can't really separate them out from one another. We need the authority of Scripture to tell us about salvation. And this morning we're going to look at salvation by grace alone. But you can already see that Paul is speaking that that salvation comes through faith alone. Now you'll have to wait till next week to hear about salvation through faith alone. But this morning we see, I think, one of the real issues... Of the Reformation. You see, many think that what happened in the Reformation was that Luther and others came to the Roman Catholic Church and said something like this You know, you believe in salvation by works, we believe in salvation by grace, and so you're wrong, you should believe in salvation by grace. Now, if you've ever read a Roman Catholic catechism, or if you've ever had a discussion with someone who is a Roman Catholic who actually knows Roman Catholic doctrine, they will be very quick to point out that they believe in grace. 
and that they believe in salvation by grace. They talk a lot about grace and what it means. So don't make that mistake today about walking up to someone and telling them what they believe, that they believe only in salvation by works. But you see, that's not the way the issue needs to be framed. Because the Bible doesn't present to us the options of salvation by grace or by works. The Bible presents to us salvation by grace alone. That is the issue of the Reformation. You see, the Roman Catholic Church of Luther's day preached salvation by grace plus some other stuff. And throughout the years, the other stuff has been modified. Perhaps it's the sacraments. Perhaps it's obedience to the church. Perhaps it's the canon of church law. Perhaps it's certain good deeds. Perhaps it's other things. But the Bible is very clear that to be saved... We are saved by grace alone. You see, the Roman Catholic Church actually had a theological term for grace. They called it prevenient grace. And prevenient is a fancy theological word for comes before. The church had taught that God sends grace before, and then you have to do your part to stay saved. God sends just enough grace to get you going. And then you've got to keep things on the path. It's all up to you to work with God's grace. But you see, the Bible doesn't tell us that we have to do our part because God has done His part. No, the real issue here is that salvation is only by grace. Now, why is this important? It's important because for grace to be grace... It must save alone. Because as soon as you introduce any principle of works, no matter how small, grace can no longer be grace. Paul puts it this way in Romans 11. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You've undefined grace. And if our works have any part in our salvation, then God's glory is diminished. What we wind up saying is, look at what I've done. We look at others and say, look how I am better than you. But the Bible will have none of it. And so this morning, I'd like us to ask and answer three questions about salvation by grace alone. First, why do we need grace? Second, what is grace? And then third, what does grace do? Let's begin by looking at the question, why do we need grace? The Bible tells us why we need grace by painting a very sober picture. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we are incapable of any good. Now, the Bible here in Ephesians 2 does not say that we are sick in need of a good doctor. It doesn't say we're uneducated in need of a good teacher. Do you see what Paul says? He says you're dead. You're dead in your transgressions and sins. That you are a corpse. That your sins have made you completely incapable 
a spiritual action. And this is a statement about everyone. It is universal. Paul begins in verse 1 by saying, And you were dead. Speaking, of course, to a Gentile church in Ephesus. So the Gentiles are dead. But lest the Jews get too proud of themselves, he says also, we, that is the Jews, all once lived this way in verse 3. And he says, we all have lived this way. So it's Jews, Gentiles, everyone has one thing in common. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. Now, the other thing we have to understand is, if anyone could have had any spark of life in them to bring about salvation, it would surely be people who are already saved. That would prove that they had finished the course, that they'd done what they needed to do. But that's exactly the people that Paul is talking to. He's talking to the people who know Jesus Christ, who have been saved, and he says, you were all dead. There is no exception. We are dead in our sins. You see, sin is the root of death. We are dead towards God, but alive toward wickedness. Now, what does that mean? It means we do not see God in our sins. It means we do not acknowledge God. And it means we do not love God. Because of all of this, sin makes all of our choices Bad choices all the time. We are in rebellion against God, transgressing His law. And this deadness is not a theory. It is something that we see all throughout the world today and even in our own lives. What do dead men do? Go ahead, I'll wait. Dead men... Do nothing. They can't act. You see, it's not just as if Paul is saying that we are empty inside. We cannot feel. We cannot see. We cannot act. We cannot choose what is good for us. Those who are dead in their trespasses and sin cannot do anything. They cannot meet Jesus halfway. To think that would be the case would be to imagine that that one morning that Lazarus would simply pop off his gravestone and say, I think I'll wait for Jesus to talk to me. I'll hang out by the entrance to the tomb. No, Lazarus was dead. Do you remember the famous phrase of his sister? Lord, he stinketh. There was no doubt that Lazarus was dead. And what Paul is saying to us here is that that is the case for us before we come to know Christ. We're not drawn to enticing things about Jesus. We don't decide that it would be good to follow Jesus. No, we are truly lost without hope in the world, Paul says in verse 12. Now what that means is that we need saving, not cleaning up. We need Jesus to save us. And there is a consequence to our deadness. That consequence is that we are slaves. We are enslaved, first and foremost, to sin itself. We spend our time living in sin. Paul says, we walked following the course of this world. 
living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why do people sin? Let me put it this way. Are we sinners because we sin? No, the Bible says. Rather, we sin because we are sinners. Because we are dead in our trespasses and sin, because we are not alive to God, we continue down the road of sin over and over again. We know no better. We want no better. We are dead. Paul says we are just following the course of the world in verse 2. And it is natural because it is the way of the world. Now you see this every day around you, don't you? There are things today that seem so normal just because they're common. Things that would have been horrendous 25 or 50 or 100 years ago now are just taken as everyday occurrences. Because... Everyone is doing it. It's all around us. You see, sin makes that sense of normalcy take hold of us. We are not looking for another way. We just accept sin in the way it is. And this life of sin leads to yet more sin. We are consumed with sin. We cannot break the chain of sin. You've experienced this, haven't you? Even the young people here. What happens when you lie? You know what happens. You end up having to tell a second lie to cover the first lie. And then what happens? You have to tell a third lie to cover the first two lies. And then sometimes you have to steal to cover the fact of the first three lies. And then sometimes you have to hurt someone to cover up the stealing that's covering up the lying. That's the way sin works. You can never just say, I'm only going to go so far. As soon as you start to go down that path, sin seizes upon us. It enslaves us. It drives us forward like a master with a whip. But there is a second power as well. The devil himself. Paul says we follow the prince of the power of the air in verse 2. And the devil is in a place of authority over those who are spiritually dead. Now, Paul is not saying that the devil is in charge of the world. But the devil does have spiritual power and influence over the world because of sin. And this makes sense, doesn't it? He is the author of rebellion. He is a murderer from the beginning. He loves death. And so he drives us on to more and more death, more and more murder. He delights in it. And he feeds us what we think we want. Because we know no better. Then there is a third master we serve. We are also enslaved to our own desires. There is a sense in which sin and rebellion feels good to us. It feels so good that we come up with new names for it. We call it maturity, independence. Have you ever wondered why when something is labeled mature, whether it is a film or a book or a show... 
that what that really means is what you will find in there, things that are hateful to God. Somehow maturity has come to mean a good thing when it encompasses things that are hateful to God and sinful. And we pride ourselves on being mature, on being independent. And again, we're driven on more and more. The truth is that we are just following our nature. We are dead sinners. And so Paul places all of us, including himself, among the disobedient. Those who lived not for God, but for ourselves. And what drove us along was the flesh and the passions of our desires. It's not something we naturally want to fight. You see, sometimes I think we look at sin as being the equivalent of pain. And we would say to ourselves, well, why would anyone want to sin? They wouldn't want to do that any more than they want to take their hand and put it on a hot stove. It's foolish. But you see, when we are dead in our sins, we don't look at sin as painful. We, we are better off viewing it as false pleasure. It's the kind of pleasure that takes too long to figure out. And that's why we are so easily enslaved. Because we think that it is for our good. Well, if we see that we need grace, what then is grace? We see that we're dead in sin, that we are hopeless, that we are unable, that we only want sin and death, and that we're enslaved to the sin, the devil, and the flesh. So what is grace then? The most important thing for us to remember is that it is undeserved. You see, it's not as if we deserved God's intervention in our lives. Anything else is a false hope. You see, it's a picture apart from Jesus Christ. We want to think we deserve blessings. We want to think we deserve salvation. And the irony is, although we are dead in sin, we think we are still very much alive. I've given you this illustration before, and I think it's appropriate, especially in our day and age. The best picture of one who's dead in sin is a zombie. It's someone who thinks they're alive, energized and pushed on by the devil, pushed on by their own desires. But they have no real ability to do anything. You see, we think if we just do our part, God will do his part and everything will work out fine. We think that we're good and so we deserve something from God. And so the blessings that come to us, come to us because we've earned them. But this denies who we are. You see, grace is not just God's favor. It is God's favor, but it's more than that. Grace is His undeserved favor. It is His favor upon those who have not merited it. Actually, we have demerited it. We're not even in a neutral position. We have rebelled. We have cursed God. We have brought pain and suffering on others and on ourselves. But then come those two great words in the Bible. But God. These two great words complete the contrast. 
They set the desperate condition of fallen humanity against the gracious initiative of God. We can do nothing, but He has come to our rescue. God intervenes not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are. Now, this is a terrible temptation in 21st century America. Because we look at ourselves and we look around at others and we say to ourselves, you know what? We're pretty good. We're not terrorists. We're not bank robbers. We're not drug pushers. We're not abusers. We're pretty good. God should sort of be lucky to have us. We've done our part. But that denies who we are in our sinful selves. And what that does is it sets up a false hope because we think we can provide for ourselves when the grace of God comes to us completely unmerited. God intervenes in spite of who we are. Beloved, God knows exactly who you are. You can hide nothing from Him. Now, at first glance, that should terrify the daylights out of you. Because there are things you hide from your spouse. There are things you hide from your parents. Things you hide from your children. Things you hide from your boss. And you do it because you look better because of it. But you can hide nothing from God. His eyes see all things. He peers into the thoughts of your mind and your heart. But the good news is he already knows how bad you are. Look at the way Paul puts it here in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. God doesn't wait for you to clean up your act. He doesn't wait for you to get it together. Even when you are at your worst, that is when God showers His grace upon you. We have run from God. But God has not run from us. Now, why does God do this? That's the second thing we understand about grace. What is grace? First, it is undeserved. But secondly, it is God's love to us. Paul speaks about it in verse 4 when he talks about God being rich in mercy. This is the compassion of God toward us. He is merciful toward us. He sees our need and he pities us. But think of the way Paul describes this. It's not just that God has a little bit of mercy. God has some mercy that we could pry out of his hands. No, he is rich in mercy. If you think of mercy as a substance, it is dripping off God's hands, overflowing upon us, because he is rich in mercy. Mercy reminds us that God knows how bad we are, but he does not repay us with what we deserve. Paul then goes on to describe the Lord as having, because of the great love with which He loved us. Now, love is God's self-generated concern for us. Love is other-centered. Now, just to give you a very pale imitation of a picture of God's love, think about, in your home, 
when you bring home a baby. You love that baby, don't you? Now let me ask you this. What does the baby contribute to the well-being of the family? Nothing. As a matter of fact, if we could be honest here for a minute, babies are nothing but trouble. They make it so you can't sleep. They make it so it's hard to think. They make it so it's hard to eat. They get you up at all hours. They make a mess. They scream and yell. They do nothing to contribute to making your life better then. And yet we love them. Why? Because we have chosen to cast our love upon them. It is self-generated. You don't love your children because of what they've done. It comes from you. Now, again, that is a pale imitation picture of the love of God. But God sets his love upon us not because of what we've done. Do not fool yourself. God does not love you because you read your Bible. Because you never read your Bible enough. God does not love you because you pray. Because your prayers are weak and frail. God does not love you because you help others. Because you fall short and you do it out of self-interest. No, God loves you in Jesus Christ because he has determined from before the foundation of the world to set his love upon you and to show you his love by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, to obey the law in every instance where you did not. And to die an atoning death. To pay the penalty that you deserve for all of the times that you hated God. That you cursed God. That you rebelled against God. That you ignored God. That is love. Now there's also an important factor for us as well that worked itself out during the time of the Reformation. Because the church at that time had taught that it was grace plus something else, that you had to keep your salvation moving forward by what you did, there was no sense of assurance of God's love. You were fearful that at any moment that you could do the wrong work, forget to do a work, mess up your work, and somehow God would cease to love you. But the doctrine of sola gratia tells us There's nothing in us that provokes God to love us. And so we are completely secure in God's love. You've already been the worst you could possibly be before God. You can't get any worse than being dead in trespasses and sin. And yet God sets his love upon those who trust in Jesus. God needs nothing from us. It was his love that caused creation. It was his love that foresaw the cross. It was his love that accomplished the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. And that love has come in Jesus. God's love is not abstract. It comes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what God's grace looks like, look to Jesus. He is the manifestation of God's grace. He suffered so that we would not. He rescued us when we hated Him. He made us alive when we were dead 
in our trespasses and sins, Paul says in verse 5. Why do we need grace? Because we are completely incapable of saving ourselves. What is grace? It is God's undeserved favor upon us, motivated by His love. Well, then what does grace do? The Bible says that the first and most important principle is that grace saves. God saves a people who are in need. We are lost and we cannot find our way. We have been separated from God. We are under the penalty of sin, death. We are under the wrath of God. Falling into the hands of a just God and we have no defense before Him. And so God saves people who are unable. It's very clear that we are not able. Look at what Paul says here in verse 8. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Could Paul be any clearer? But Paul, what about all my good deeds? Not of your own doing. But Paul, all the scripture I memorized, not of your own doing. You can do nothing. Salvation comes from the Lord, from His grace. Paul puts it this way in Titus chapter 3. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of His Spirit. Now, our nature doesn't like this, does it? Because we like to get credit for things. Have you ever had the experience of being in a group or maybe with a work colleague and someone comes in and they start speaking to the colleague or the friend, giving them credit for something that you've been involved with or you've done? Makes you angry, doesn't it? You start to think about ways that you could turn the conversation to kind of throw a nugget out there to make it clear, hey, I did that. Because then they'll realize and then they'll profusely thank you and you can smile and be humble and say, oh, it was nothing. I just, I just did what I had to do. But you see, that's often the attitude that we take into our own salvation. Yeah, God is tremendous, but let me tell you, I did a lot of Bible study in my day. And I have been a good teacher and I have prayed for people and I, I'm going to tell you all the things that I've done. You see, the irony is we want to be special, but all we need is a God who saves us when we are unable. What could make us more special than that? Now, this is because no one should be able to boast, Paul says in verse 9. Because if we contributed anything to our salvation, we would deserve the praise for our salvation. And grace tells me that I can only boast in God. God has done everything. God deserves all the praise because it is by grace, what? Alone. I contribute nothing to it. Now finally, some have criticized the idea of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because they say it leads to a life of sin. That if I know I'm saved by grace, shouldn't we just continue to sin so that we could get even more grace? 
Well, people said that in Paul's day too. And Paul answered the question, certainly not. That's why we have verse 10 in our passage. You see, we cannot say that faith plus works equals salvation. But we also cannot say that works do not matter. We are saved by grace, not by works, but we are saved for good works, Paul says. It's it's quite simple. How do you tell the difference between a dead heart and a live heart? The live heart beats. Now, is the live heart alive because it beats? No. That's the evidence of life in the heart. And so it is with us. That's why every place in which the Bible says that we will be judged according to our deeds, that the Lord will judge us according to our actions, that we will receive reward according to our actions. In every one of those places, the Bible is just setting forth the great truth that those who are saved will show they are saved. And if they do not show it, guess what? They've never been saved. Those who are saved by grace are saved for good works. That is a part of God's plan. He doesn't love us more because of those good works. He's already loved us and put His grace upon us. But He has changed us. You see, we are created for good works. We are His workmanship. That is God's plan for us. He has prepared those works beforehand that we might walk in them. We receive no merit at all from these works. God has given us the ability to do them. God has prepared them beforehand. And God's gracious work is to prepare for himself, to save for himself a people by grace alone, through faith alone, for his glory alone. In all that we do, we are to glorify God. We are to give Him all the praise in salvation. We are to live our lives as a testimony in praise of Him. Grace is the work of God from beginning to end. We can do nothing without His grace. We do not deserve His grace. But He gives us His grace in Jesus who loved us enough to die for us and to bring us to the Father. This grace changes us. It makes us children of God. This is why grace is so amazing. We dare not add one single thing to it. Let's pray.